My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Mormon Church in 50 Objects podcast. Hello again, and welcome to History of the Mormon Church in 50 Objects, Episode 11, The Law. In the fall of 2017, Hurricane Harvey made landfall in Texas and the southern states. After weeks of being battered by this Category 4 hurricane, the damage was catastrophic. The floods inundated hundreds of thousands of homes, displaced almost 30,000 people, and prompted more than 17,000 rescues. In the end, it was the most costly cyclone on record, inflicting $125 billion in damages and killing just over 100 people. It was awful. Now, just weeks before the storm hit, three giant semi-trucks full of water and relief kits rolled out of the Mormon's Bishop Central Storehouse in Salt Lake City, Utah, and sped off to Houston, Texas, to resupply the Houston Bishop's Storehouse. The Houston Bishop's Storehouse was fully stocked and supplied in preparation after Texas Governor Greg Abbott said an upcoming hurricane could batter the state's Gulf Coast region for over a week. After the storm ended, the kits, bottled water, and Mormon volunteers showed up in droves to assist in the cleanup and rebuilding of the area. This impressive reaction by the Mormons was just the latest in a long line of responses after many natural disasters. The Mormon Church currently has over 130 bishops' storehouses around the world that provide many of the same services as retail food stores, yet not one of them has a cash register. They are stocked with food, water, and clothing without a single price tag and are in place just to serve the poor and the needy in those areas. You don't even need to be a Mormon to receive of their goods. In July of 2016, PBS ran a special on the Mormon Church's welfare system. They walked through many of the buildings, they looked at the donations, and watched volunteers in action. PBS came away very impressed, saying, quote, There may be many other charities that are larger or more helpful, but the welfare tradition within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons, must be one of the world's best. Now, unfortunately, the Mormon Church doesn't publish just how much they donate every year. However, in a speech given at Oxford University in 2016, Elder Dallin H. Oaks, a counselor to the current Mormon prophet, said, quote, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints spends about $40 million on welfare, humanitarian, and other LDS-sponsored projects around the world, and has done so for more than 30 years. That would account for approximately $1.2 billion on welfare and humanitarian efforts over the past 30 years. Elder Oaks also said that in the last year alone, Mormon volunteers had donated over 25 million hours of labor. He said in the year 2015, they had 177 emergency response projects in 56 countries. And in addition, they had hundreds of projects that impacted more than 1 million people in seven other categories of assistance, such as clean water, immunization, and vision care. So back to the PBS study on the Mormon Church's welfare system, According to their report, the Mormon welfare system holds enough provisions to meet the projected demands of members and non-members 
in the United States and Canada for two years. That is astonishing. So where did this industry of preparation come from? How and why are the Mormons so prepared? It has all come from the law. The object we're going to be discussing in this episode is the law. Most Mormons know it as God's law or the law of consecration. So where did it come from? In the last episode, we discussed how in December of 1830, Joseph Smith received the revelation that he and the rest of the Mormons were to gather in Kirtland, Ohio. Not only would this get them away from the persecutions that were accompanying the Mormons in New York, but God told Joseph Smith in a revelation, Wherefore, for this cause, I gave unto you the commandment that you should go to Ohio, and there I will give unto you my law. Now, if you'll remember, Joseph Smith had a good number of converts in New York. Most of these families were quite well off, and the number of Mormons was just under 70. This many members of the Mormon church were enough to organize them together in what the Mormons call a branch. Branch meaning a group of Mormons who worship together. They were called the Colesville branch, as Colesville was the central area where they all lived, and this was the first branch in the history of the Mormon church, with Joseph Smith's brother Hiram serving as branch president over the Colesville Mormons. We've discussed to this point many of these Mormons, people like Josiah Stowell, Martin Harris, and Joseph Knight Sr. Remember, the first miracle recorded by Joseph Smith was him casting a devil out of Newell Knight, the son of Joseph Knight Sr. Well, these Mormons heard the call to organize in Kirtland, and naturally many of them, as they were quite well off, asked, Why Kirtland? Joseph was told through Revelation that there they'd receive God's law. So, to their credit, they all immediately packed up, sold their farms and the belongings not going on the trip, and made off for Ohio. Now, just a few months previous to the Mormons hearing the call to gather in Kirtland, the owner of a well-to-do hat shop in Ohio was working in his factory when four Mormon missionaries showed up at his door. The Mormons told him about God's work of restoring the Church of Jesus Christ, about living prophets and new scripture that accompanied the Bible. The man thought these Mormons were crazy and turned them away, but didn't let them get too far before sending one of his workers after them to purchase a copy of their Book of Mormon. That man, Edward Partridge, took the Book of Mormon home where he discussed it with his wife Lydia, who upon reading it felt moved that the Book of Mormon supported the Christian message from the Book of Acts. Edward Partridge then found out his local minister Sidney Rigdon had even joined the Mormon movement, and when he heard Sidney wanted to travel to New York to meet the claimed prophet Joseph Smith, he requested to accompany him. Upon meeting Joseph Smith, he was convinced of the truth claims and was immediately baptized. He returned home to find his wife had already joined the Mormon church as well. So just a few months after this, the Mormon church is growing like crazy in Ohio, and Joseph Smith comes to meet with Edward Partridge. Joseph Smith then explains to Edward that he's received a revelation wherein Edward Partridge was to serve as the first bishop in the history of the Mormon church. Now, quick side note, bishops in the Mormon church aren't paid clergy like in other faiths. The regular run-of-the-mill members that take on the duty of a bishop for generally three to five years. They maintain their current jobs while also tending to the flock of Mormons in their area, so to speak. They organize groups of believers into wards or branches, depending on the number of Mormons. They assign out callings, oversee ordinances like baptism and the sacrament, 
and tend to the spiritual and, here's the important part, material health of the local members, generally drawing from the bishop's storehouse when necessary, as we discussed at the beginning of this podcast with Hurricane Harvey. However, in Edward Partridge's case, the call was a bit different. There was no bishop's storehouse to draw upon, and his calling as bishop was different as he was to leave his merchandise and spend all his time in the labors of the church. So Edward Partridge quits his job, accepts his calling as bishop, and probably wonders what labors of the church actually means. Fortunately, a few days later, Joseph Smith received another revelation called The Law by early church members, which would contain information about his duties as church bishop. So back to our object, what is the law? The revelation commanded that Mormons would consecrate all their properties to God through Bishop Partridge. Bishop Partridge was then to divvy out that which was sufficient to each individual and family. Bishop Partridge was then to maintain any remaining property in a storehouse, or bishop's storehouse, to administer to the poor and needy, and to build Zion. So now the Colesville branch from New York starts arriving, and the Mormons start living the law. Immediately, one of the early Ohio converts, a man named Lehman Copley, donates 700 to 1,000 acres to the bishop's storehouse. So Edward Partridge, acting as bishop, begins organizing and assigning out land on which the New York Mormons can live and helps them get on their feet. Now, this process of living the law of consecration will be practiced throughout the Mormons' time in Ohio, Missouri, and Illinois. It will help to support those that arrive from the eastern states and other countries to land on their feet. It'll support and help lift those that lose their homes and possessions to mob violence. It won't be until the Mormons land in Utah Territory that they'll eventually cease the physical practice of donating their properties to the church and begin with a general tithe and offering to maintain the bishop's storehouse. So what does the law look like today? Mormons still covenant to keep the law of consecration, though what is generally asked of them is to pay tithes, donate offerings, and donate service. When people hear consecrate, they generally think give up, but that's not how Mormons see it. To consecrate something means to make it holy. When Christ was asked which was the great commandment in the law, he replied to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. To the Mormons, consecrating the material goods was a demonstration of their love for God and a commitment to love their neighbors by caring for the poor and the needy among them. So, with the law in place, in the Articles of the Church of Christ, or Section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Mormons now have the general guidelines they need to grow the church wherever missionaries are baptizing people. Now, most of the early Mormons embraced and supported the law, but just like the rich youth that found he couldn't sell everything, donate it to the poor, and follow Jesus, some early Mormons found this pill a little bit too difficult to swallow. Eventually, Lehman Copley will rescind his offer to the Mormon church of donating these lands. Copley feels he has given too much and becomes critical of the church and is eventually excommunicated. Now, later, he'll be rebaptized and even serve a mission, but for the immediate future, the settling Colesville branch and others arriving no longer had lands to live on. Also at this time, as the Mormon church has revealed God's law, Joseph Smith is now trying to build a city like Zion, where the pure in heart lived. His eyes now turn to Missouri and to the West.
Now, where can you read a copy of the law? It is found in section 42 of the Mormon Church's Doctrine and Covenants. You can buy a copy in most bookstores or just read it for free online at LDS.org. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode on the law and how it supported early Mormons and how it supports millions of people around the world today. As always, if you have questions or comments about this episode, you can reach out to me directly at Joe, H-O-M-C, History of Mormon Church at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.